Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for this evening to be together to dive into your word. Thank you for this community, the gift of each person here. And I thank you, Lord, for everything we bring into this study tonight. All of the good and the bad, everything weighing on our hearts or causing us excitement, anything causing us anxiety or dread, or anything we are anticipating in the future. We just pray, Lord, that tonight would be an opportunity to bring all of it before you and allow you, as always, to speak to us. And so we invite the presence of your Holy Spirit here tonight to guide us. We know wherever two or more are gathered in your name, you are amongst us. And so we are here in your name, studying your word, Lord, desiring to know you, encounter you, and follow you more faithfully. And so help us to be good hearers and better doers of your word, and bless us each tonight in the ways we most need it. Bless us with the ability to receive, to be attentive to how you are speaking to us, and help us to set aside, lay down all of our potential distractions, anything that might be pulling us away from this time, so that we can be totally focused on what you have in store for us. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Welcome. Happy All Hallows' Eve once again. We are in Luke chapter twenty. Starting verse 27, this is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is the 32nd Sunday in ordinary time, We're getting close to the end of the liturgical year. And we have a question about the resurrection of Jesus from the Sadducees. So we skip ahead a little bit from last week's gospel. Uh, in last week's gospel, Jesus was in Jericho encountering Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And after that, he gives a parable and he enters into Jerusalem and he does a few things. The main which is he cleanses the temple and uh, thoroughly irritates and frustrates the Pharisees, um, to say it lightly. And then he starts getting questioned by them. By what authority do you do these things? Um, they try and trick him. Is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not? That uh, parable about, or that narrative about the temple tax. And that all ends with this third question of the Sadducees coming and questioning Jesus. So this is Jesus' first day in Jerusalem in the last week of his life. He's knows and is anticipating that he is going to offer himself on the cross for our sins. And this is the beginning of the questioning and a lot of the frustrations that are going to climax in the moment of everyone trying to turn him over and arrest him and have him killed. Okay, So this encounter with Jesus and the Sadducees, I believe, only appears in the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to read from uh, chapter 20, verses 27 through 38. Okay, So first time through, get a picture for this. I believe we're still in the temple area. In Jerusalem, so try and picture that. Jesus teaching these crowds, a lot of people not happy with him. His disciples are there, Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, all these people in the town who are there for the pilgrimage feast of Passover. A lot of crowds of people. It would have been very, very busy, dusty, a lot of noise, animals there for sacrifice, all kinds of things going on. So try and picture that as we are uh, reading this our first time through. Some Sadducees... 
those who deny that there is a resurrection, came forward and put this question to Jesus, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, If someone's brother dies, leaving a wife but no child, his brother must take the wife and raise up descendants for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married a woman but died childless. Then the second and the third married her, and likewise all the seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. Now, at the resurrection, whose wife will that woman be? For all seven had been married to her. Jesus said to them, The children of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are deemed worthy to attain to the coming age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. They can no longer die, for they are like angels, and they are the children of God because they are the ones who will rise. That the dead will rise, even Moses made known in the passage about the bush when he called Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. We'll read this last line as well. Some of the scribes said in reply, Teacher, you have answered well, and they no longer dared to ask him anything. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, the gospel leaves it kind of on a cliffhanger there, so we'll just end the little ending. So now you get an idea for what is being said here. Probably a passage you've heard before, but not as regularly as some of the more familiar passages. Um, so now that you get that in your mind, this time through, as always, we're going to listen and see if a particular word or phrase stands out, any detail resonates with you for a particular reason, uh, just something speaks to you individually about this. Hold on to whatever that is. Try and ask Jesus, what are you trying to say to me through this? How are you speaking to me through this, Lord? And begin to uh, just reflect on that as we read this second time. Luke 20, starting in verse 27, once again. Some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, came forward and put this question to Jesus, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, If someone's brother dies, leaving a wife but no child, his brother must take the wife and raise up descendants for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married a woman but died childless. Then the second and the third married her, and likewise all the seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. Now at the resurrection, whose wife will that woman be? For all seven had married to her, had been married to her. Jesus said to them, The children of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are deemed worthy to attain to the coming age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. They can no longer die, for they are like angels, and they are the children of God because they are the ones who will rise. That the dead will rise, even Moses made known in the passage about the bush when he called Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the scribes said in reply, Teacher, you have answered well. And they no longer dared to ask him anything. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments, look over the things that stood out to you, especially the things that maybe provoked questions. This isn't uh, one of the most straightforward readings that there is. And so write those things down or make note of them, what resonated with you, what stood out to you. And uh, we'll take about 10 minutes for you to just share, discuss those things with the people around you, and then we'll come back in the larger group for us to um, ask questions and share with one another.
What are some of the things that are standing out, resonating with you, or questions that you have? Yes. Um, when the wife is like married to like the husband, but then like dies and makes her childless, and then she's a widow, and then she keeps marrying the brother. Yeah. Like, why is it specifically like a brother and not? Why can't she have the freedom to choose to marry the other person again? Yeah, so um, this is in the Torah. It's in Deuteronomy 25. It's called leveret marriage. And it was something that was done um, in order to do two things. To extend, because you were, everyone married within their own tribe. Um, and tribes were large. It wasn't like creepy, incestuous kind of thing. Like you're always marrying your first cousin or whatever, you know. But they married within their own tribe because you had land rights. And you wanted to retain the land. And you wanted to make sure that that inheritance went down generation after generation. So that was one reason to make sure that you produced an heir to that, uh, to that line. And the second was to protect the woman, because when a woman doesn't have a child and her husband dies, she has no one to care for her in this culture. You know, and she's, she can left to be, widows are often listed in the, uh, in the Torah and all throughout scripture as those who are one of the most vulnerable the widow, the foreigner, the refugee, the orphan. And so there's all these laws throughout the Bible that those are the people we're meant to protect. Those are the people who are most vulnerable. Those are the people Jesus often goes to to make sure that they are cared for and criticizes the Pharisees and the scribes for not, for not caring for them. So that would, those are the two reasons why. So it's part, part of that. So you can read the actual law in Deuteronomy 25 in verses, I think, 5 to 10. Uh, it's called leveret marriage. So how, would, how it would work is if, it actually specifies that it's when brothers live together, meaning that they're in the same ancestral area. So it's not just like, call Carl, my, you know, the next brother who's living like, you know, two states away or whatever. It's like you're living in the ancestral land in the same area. Um, there's no heir. The husband dies. Then the next brother will come and he will try and produce an heir. And that child will have the name of the first brother who died. So this is kind of a duty that the second brother performs to ensure that his older brother gets that inheritance. Remember when we talked about the prodigal son, that the older son gets the most of the inheritance, okay? Double portion of the inheritance. Um, and if the, uh, the second brother or whoever's next in line, if they don't do that, then the wife can go to the elders of the city and she can uh, accuse the brother of not fulfilling his leveret duty and she has the ability to then uh, publicly spit in his face and strip off his sandal, which isn't that scandalous, but it was a huge sign of, uh, of, or of dishonor at that time. It was a public shaming um, to be done. And you would normally expect that in a more patriarchal culture to be something that was a law levied against women who did something wrong. But this is, you know, one of those vice versa laws where if men aren't holding up their end of the bargain, the woman has every right to do that within public. Um, so it was, a, it was a serious thing for people to do and to adhere to, to ensure that the family line would continue, the ancestral land would not be lost, and that the name of the eldest in the genealogy would continue. Yeah? So they basically used the, um, the first husband's name. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially... The second brother or whoever it was disappears, you know, in the genealogy, which pretty much happens anyway, because they're not firstborn. That's a very sacred position in the family at this time, a firstborn son. And so they're not really listed in the genealogy anyway. 
you know, at least in most of them. And so they're, what they're doing is more of a responsibility to the, to the tribe, to society, and to their family to try and ensure that that blessing carries on in their family. Yeah? What's really interesting about this passage is it's not what it's said, but also what it's not said. It's the in-between-the-line stuff. It's like what I, I keep as what this word is appropriate here, but what existence will be like after we resurrect. Mm. Oh, what will we will what will we be like? Mm. Okay, living in, a, in, a, in an eternal now, yeah, with, with uh, being newly created and our relationships with the people that have come before, and mm -hmm. all this is like jam packed in here in between the lines. Yeah, it's it's just fascinating. Yeah, yeah, and we we don't know too much, you know, about heaven because not many people have been there and come back to tell us. Um, but, and those who have, have sometimes personal experiences that maybe aren't indicative of what we know theologically. But we do know from scripture, especially passages like this, um, that heaven is perfect unity with God and God is at, present at all times. God is outside of time. And so it, being in union with God means we're outside of time, which seem and space and all of that, you know, so, which sounds kind of crazy. Like we, we don't even know how to fathom that. But it's just you are equally present to then, now, and not yet, all at once. Equally present to all of it. And that is why some people, when they have near-death experiences and they encounter people um, that they have loved, they've known in life, they sometimes report that they appeared old and young all at once. You know, that they saw their grandparents like as they knew them, but then also saw them as a child, how their, par how, you know, their parents or their friends may have seen them. Um, and so they can come back and point to old pictures and say, yeah, that was grandpa in a, in a form that they had never seen him in, in earthly life or at an age they had never seen him in an earthly life. So, um, yeah, we will be in relationship with God. We'll be outside of time. It's eternal happiness, joy. Anything that we need in heaven in order to be perfectly happy will, will exist in heaven. Um, however, what we see here is that marriage does not exist in heaven. And that might seem like kind of a, you know, a sad thing for those of us who are married, um, but it's not because this is a promise that heaven is going to be even better than marital relationship, meaning that the church actually teaches this, that um, the sacramental union between a man and a woman, a married couple, is, the, is a foretaste, considered a foretaste of heaven, that it's the best example that we have of what heaven is like on earth, is that perfect union between men and women in the sacrament. And so... That being the best, you know, the closest, the sliver that we can experience here on earth, heaven is going to be so far and above that, that to be like, to be married um, would just seem kind of silly. You know, I'm trying to think of an equivalent of this, but to be like, um, yeah, like, okay, so like if I, if I, if with my daughter, my daughter, okay, my daughter has a crush on a boy at her school named Devin. And all I know about Devin is that he's very silly and he loves dinosaurs. That's all I know about him. But she prays for him every night and she's always talking about him. It's pretty adorable. But if you talk to a child and you try to start to explain to them like the details of like marital intimacy at a child level, like, but if you, you know, start to have that birds and the bees talk, let's say, I'm not having that with my daughter yet, obviously she's four, but like, if you were to attempt to do that, they would be like, that's ridiculous. Like, gross, I don't want that, you know? Um, and it's kind of the same thing for us when we think about heaven is like, 
we're offered this something better, but because we don't really understand it, we're like, I don't know if I want that. You know, I, I like being married. Like, I, I don't, I don't want to not be married to my wife. And we're missing the point there is that, like, it's going to be so much better than we can actually imagine now. And it has a purpose that we maybe we don't understand at our current level of understanding, if that makes sense in that analogy. Um, and so it's kind of like that, that it's so much higher and above our own experience here on earth. Uh, we know from Jesus' resurrected body and experience, he had the ability to um, go through walls to kind of um, overcome the laws of space and time and physics. Uh, he was still able to eat food. He ate breakfast with the apostles. You know, he ate fish and things like that in his resurrected form. Um, he still had his wounds, which was interesting. There'll be some kind of recognition of maybe pain and suffering that we went through, but it won't feel as though it were pain and suffering because we'll be removed from all of that. Um, and will be recognizable in some form, but you know, initially people didn't recognize the risen Jesus was Jesus. So we will be different, perfected in some manner as well. Um, so those are the things we know from certain passages about heaven and what we can glean about Jesus's resurrected character that we can assume await us in heaven. All good stuff. Now, are your pets there? That's a question. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the answer is, if you need your pet to be happy in heaven, your pet will be there. Yeah. <laughs> Good answer. Vicki. Um, okay, this, this passage, um, it just seems like it's just thrown in the middle and doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. The children of this age marry and are given marriage, but those who are deemed worthy to attain and come to get the age are given in marriage. It's like, it, it's like it's seems like it's thrown in there and it doesn't connect with anything. Mm -hmm. Well, so what the Sadducees here are doing is they're, they're, they're doing this thing in philosophy. It's called an argument reductio ad absurdum. So they're reducing a teaching that they don't believe in in the resurrection, and they're providing an absurd example to show why they think this is ridiculous. Okay? Um, they, they don't believe in the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They only acknowledge the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, so they only believe in the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they don't believe in angels or in, in spirits. Okay, those are in, uh, things that are specific to the Sadducees. So what Jesus is trying to do here is they're painting this ridiculous picture of like, of course, there's no resurrection, because if all these people are getting married left and right, who are they going to be married to in the resurrected life? And so what Jesus is saying is like, look, things don't work in heaven like they do here. Like people, they're given in marriage in this age, but the children of God who go to the next age, like their marriage isn't even a question to them because heaven is so much better. So he's trying to kind of like reduce, like recognize what they're proposing is absurd. It's like this attack that they're having against the resurrection, like it's, it's poking at the wrong thing. Like they're making this big deal about marriage. And he's like, look, like no one cares about marriage in heaven. You know, so like your argument doesn't have any weight, doesn't have any, any, any foothold. Does that make sense? That's why it's kind of thrown in there is because he's, he's first kind of objecting to the way that they're making an argument. And then he defends the resurrection. What I find interesting about this is that the whole passage kind of seems like right after this, um, we go into, you know, there's, he asks a question back and then we have some teachings, but in, in uh, Luke 21 is kind of what they call like a mini apocalypse. It's a, about like a lot of teachings about the end times. And that tends to happen toward the end of Jesus's discourses, right before he goes into the events of, you know, him being handed over and arrested and all of that. And that happens in Luke 22. So this is one of the last interactions he has. 
And one of the, the I think it is the last question that is posed to him um, that doesn't have to do with the end times or the destruction of the temple, but it's the last kind of theological question posed to him. And it, it makes sense to me then that it would be about the resurrection. Because even though it may not seem like it, the resurrection, Scripture says, is like the, the crux of everything. It's central to everything. Like if we can prove or believe in the resurrection, everything hangs on that. In fact, it says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is all about the resurrection, um, it says, For if, if the dead are not raised, neither has Christ been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. Your faith is in vain. Everything that you believe means nothing without the resurrection. So it makes perfect sense to me that at the end of this dialogue, what is the climactic attack against Jesus and his teaching? It's in the resurrection. It seems very trivial when we read it kind of by itself. Like, where did this come from? Why are the Sadducees asking this? Like, who cares who they are? They're the small, weird group of people who have radically different beliefs than everyone else Jesus talks to. And it's because this is so central and important. And notice what Jesus does. He recognizes their critique of the argument doesn't really have any ground, but then he still answers them. He still gives this weight because it's so important, because it's so central. And what he does when, he, when they question him, what does he do? He appeals to a common ground. What does he quote? He quotes the Torah, which they acknowledge as true. He quotes Exodus chapter 3, when Moses appears, uh, God appears to Moses in the burning bush and introduces himself as I am the God of your fathers, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He quotes something that they deem is divinely inspired and has authority so that he can appeal to that as evidence of the fact that he is the God of living people who have already died. Why would he call himself that if the dead don't matter, if they're not risen? And shows that as evidence for the fact that these patriarchs of faith, they are indeed in heaven with God. That resurrection is real and that it is central to our belief as Christians. Otherwise, he would just kind of pass this off as something ridiculous, you know, like this is you're reducing this to some absurd argument, you know, there's no marriage in heaven, you know, but he takes it seriously, which I think is important. And I think it's by no mistake that the final big questioning is based on something that really, if you think about it, is central to everything. Yeah. People like this and afterwards believe in the resurrection based on their interaction with him? I would say some of the scribes obviously seem convinced, at least that it was a good argument. Um, but even after Jesus rises from the dead, there are people who don't believe. There are people who try and cover it up. There's, you know, in Matthew, they even say that they promulgate the myth that the apostles and the disciples stole his body, which is still a myth that continues to this day, um, that he didn't really raise from the dead or that he didn't even really die in the first place. So not everyone was convinced. I don't know of any particular Sadducee by name or in history that was convinced and, you know, converted. We don't know too many specific people who identify with their, like, kind of Jewish party. You know, in Scripture we have, like, um, what's his name? Nicodemus. I think Joseph of Arimathea, I think it was um, possibly a Pharisee. Josephus, the historian, was a former Pharisee. So we have some people that we know in history, but I don't know of one historical Sadducee. There, there are probably some. I'm just not as well-versed in that history. So, yeah. Forty sounds like it's a, okay, you got us, but we really don't believe you. I mean, it's just the yeah. Written. Is that, am I correct? I think they no longer dared to ask him anything means that they were accepting of the fact that they could not challenge him. Because like, this question and answer thing, this was common for disciples and rabbis to do. It was very common. It was how they learned was question and answer. And they start with asking, like, by whose authority do you get all this stuff? Because he just went through the temple and cleansed it and flipped over tables. 
And so they could probably cart him off to jail for being some kind of revolutionary, but they see that he has a following. They take him seriously and they want to know by whose authority do you do this? Meaning, who taught you? What rabbi did you study under? Like, who, in what generation of teaching do you see yourself as a member of or as next in line of? And Jesus obviously is just unique unto himself. He's the son of God, God incarnate, the second person of the blessed Trinity. And so, you know, he has no one who taught him but like God the Father. There's no earthly rabbi that he is like, oh, I'm, you know, in the line of the rabbi Shemel or whoever it is, you know. Um, so that's what they're appealing to there. You know, when they're questioning, they're, they're trying to see like, where did this guy come from? What, what, there's two schools of rabbis at this time. There was a more conservative and a more liberal, nothing's changed, more conservative and a more liberal kind of sect. Um, one was, I think, the Rabbi Hillel, who was the more liberal one, and then the Rabbi Shammai, who was the more conservative one. Um, and they, people were in either camp, you know? And so when they would ask, by whose authority do you get this from? It was like, okay, what camp do you fall in? Sometimes they'd probably be like, okay, we don't have to believe him. He's, you know, he's with the red rabbis or he's with the blue rabbis, you know, whatever it is, you know? Uh, we don't have to take him seriously, you know? So that was part of it, you know? But they get to a point where it's like, we can't discredit him. You know, we can't ask him anything else. He keeps posing questions that we can't answer, or he keeps answering all of our tricky questions with things that we cannot refute. You know, he can't fall into any of our traps. And so I think that, I, I don't think it implies a passiveness. I think it implies that, like, there's a recognition, like, wow, like, this guy, we can't get him. Like, and that's why they have to go the deceptive route. That's why they have to lie and say that he was incurring a rebellion or whatever it was, you know. Yeah. Other questions, other things that stand out that you find interesting? This Michael. Kind of immature. <laughs> Please. Uh, for him, all our lives made me think of like Hogwarts, or the painting, or the ghost. They still yeah. like are the personality of that person. Yeah. Or they're like injected into an AI program before they die, so you can still say hello to them even though they're not really alive. Yeah. Yeah. God can do that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there is more to life than this life. That's what this is getting at. There's more to life than this life. But when we turn to things that do not give us life, that do not take hold of the freedom of the eternal life that God is offering us now, then our life results in death that is destructive, not death that is a doorway to the next. And that's really what hell is, is it's just us choosing to be separate from God for the rest of eternity, choosing to say no to that gift, utterly and openly rejecting it, knowing full well what it was. Um, or at least having some level of understanding of it. Saying, no, God, I don't want that. I don't want to live in that. I think T.S. Eliot said, hell is the terrible compliment God pays to our freedom. Now, yeah, it's up to us. And then he has another quote about hell that goes something like, the gates of heaven are locked, but they are locked from the inside. For as terrible as hell is, nothing would be more terrible to those in hell than heaven. Because they're so attached to their sin, they probably couldn't even fathom the love and the freedom of heaven. Because they've so obstinately chosen their sin. Yeah. It's my favorite hell quotes, in case you're wondering. Appropriate on Halloween, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Can't, I know. No air, I guess. I mean, it could have been the husband's problems, you know. They all got some genetic, uh, I don't know, we won't get into it, but 
Yeah, this is how important they saw, like I said, this is how important they saw producing an heir. Because if you, if the heirs died off, if the family name died off, then land went on, like, it was up for grabs. You know, and you were losing the covenant blessing that God promised to Abraham. All the way back in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, God promises Abraham, you will have many descendants that outnumber the stars. I will bless you, and I will give you the promised land. And so that's what everyone held on to. This is what makes us the chosen people because we have this land, because we're blessed, because we're so numerous. And if you lose that, then in their mind, we lose the covenant promise of God. That's how important it was. In fact, there's a whole episode of this in Genesis 38 um, with Judah, uh, who's one of the, the founders of one of the 12 tribes, one of the sons of, um, of Joseph, I mean, sorry, of Jacob, brother of Joseph. And Judah, he has um, a two, uh, several sons, but um, he... His son named Ur, if you're looking for baby names, Ur, um, he, uh, he, Judah finds a wife for him named Tamar. You may, her name may sound familiar to you. Tamar, um, Ur, her husband, dies, Judah's son, because he did things that displeased God. That's what it says in, in Genesis 38. And doesn't produce an heir. So his brother Onan does the, the thing he's supposed to do and marries her and tries to produce an heir. But he, um, he does something that you're not supposed to do. I won't get into it. You can go read it yourself. But he does something very uh, disrespectful to God in the midst of that act. And he does, chooses to find a way to not produce an heir in the midst of the sexual act. And so God punishes Onan, and Onan dies. And so um, Judah's next son is too young to marry. And so Tamar goes home to live with her father. And later on, Judah doesn't do the thing he's supposed to do. He doesn't give this son to Tamar. And so Tamar, she takes off her widow's clothes and she dresses up like a harlot. And Judah's wife has now died and she appears as a harlot on the street to Judah. And Judah, being the ridiculous man that he is, she's like, sure, you know, let's go to bed. And ends up impregnating his daughter-in-law, or former daughter-in-law. And that's how the line continues. And what's interesting about that is I think, if I'm not mistaken, if you read the lineage of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, Tamar is in the line of Jesus. She's one of the few women quoted in the genealogy of Jesus. It's through that weird happenstancical situation with Leverett marriage, how important that was, that a heir came and he was the great, 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 great someone of Jesus. And without that law in Deuteronomy being put into effect in that story in Genesis, Jesus wouldn't have been born of that line. Pretty crazy. So we see an example of that happening in Genesis 38. That's what that whole chapter is about. It's that weird Weird story of Judah and Tamar. So, yeah. Yes? Now, if, going back to the lineage, if the original first son mm-hmm. didn't have a child, but, and then it went down and there still wasn't a child, but wouldn't that land still stay in the family then with the other brothers? Or does it yeah. Mean, I mean, even though there was no other heir at that point in the yeah, it would always stay in the family, but um, there's just something about the firstborn that they saw as very sacred. And there were certain rites of the firstborn. The firstborn was consecrated to God. There was all these different things in, in the Old Testament and the Torah that specified, like, you know, the, I don't know, kind of the priority or the um, specialness. I can't think of the right word I'm trying to think, but the specialness of the, the first son. So, um, yeah. But, yeah, it often stayed in the family. There's one instance in Exodus where it's mentioned all over Exodus and Numbers because it was very weird. There was a, uh, a guy who only had five daughters, and he wanted his daughters to retain the land, 
that was his because they would normally get a dowry to go marry someone else in the tribe. And so there's this whole like legal provision for this one specific family. And it's mentioned like five times in the Torah because of how, you know, rare it was for something like that to happen. They kept super good track of this stuff because they wanted to ensure we are being faithful to the blessing that God promised Abraham and we are living it out and receiving it. And we're receiving this land and making sure no one will take it from us. And that's still a dispute to this day in the Holy Land, you know, ancestral land rights, you know, that's, they're still disputed and debated and people argue that they've lived and they have the records, you know, straight from scripture. So, yeah. Yes. Okay. Transfiguration. Yes. Um, Moses and who else appeared with Jesus in Transfiguration? Yes, Elijah. Elijah. Okay. They appeared corporal enough, okay, for one of the apostles to say, let us build three tents. Yes. So what form were they, and they what were they when they appeared in Transfiguration? Yeah. Um, I mean, we they believe in... I mean, they may have been because Elijah was assumed into heaven. We know that from the Old Testament. Um, we have that actually spelled out. Moses, we don't we don't have an episode like that. He dies on the top of Mount Nebo, I believe, right outside of the Holy Land. Um, and he has a tomb that was like historically a pilgrimage site, I think, but I don't think we know where it is anymore. Um, but it appears as though they are in their resurrected form. You know, they're in union with Jesus, you know. And I mean, God can do everything. You know, he can make it appear as though Moses and Elijah are there if they're still awaiting the resurrection in the bosom of Abraham. You know, the kingdom of heaven isn't opened yet for them or whatever it might be. Um, but what form are they in? Well, probably if they were resurrected, they'd be in the form that we'll all be in one day, which is we'll have our soul and we'll have our glorified body. So when we die, our soul leaves our body. It goes to Jesus for judgment. That's called your particular judgment. It's when all the cards are put on the table and you go one of three places, purgatory, heaven, or hell. And purgatory eventually gets you to heaven. Um, and your soul goes through a purification process through purgatory, most likely, and you end up in heaven. Or your soul goes to eternal torment and, and hell. Um, but then at the end of time, the second coming, when Jesus returns, is the final judgment. And at the final judgment, all those who are still living will be judged. And all of our bodies will be reassembled, because some people get cremated. They will be risen, and they will be perfected into glorified form and rejoin our souls. So we'll have a glorified body and a perfected soul in union for all eternity in heaven. So it would assume as though they had some form of that, because God is outside of time, or they just had their perfected soul, if you know we're encountering them in time without the final judgment having happened yet. So in their resurrected form in some capacity. That's what you have to look forward to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I kind of wanted to add to that uh, transfiguration at that Mount Tabor that it is certainly possible that Moses appeared in sort of like that resurrected physical form. Also on account of, uh, for Matthew 27, 52, which there is no consensus by the fathers on which prophets arose from the tombs to proclaim the resurrected Christ, but it is possible that he was mm. one of the prophets. Sure. Um, but then I also had a separate point that I thought was interesting about this passage in that I kind of see like a split dichotomy in, I guess, humility versus humiliation and the progression mm. of maybe latter, like post-Second Temple um, rabbinic tradition versus uh, Christian development of doctrine. Um, insofar as uh, you kind of see, like, there's a huge emphasis on the carnality of the law, the carnality of marriage, ancestral rights, yeah. um, or, like, 
the sharing of duties between uh, men and women uh, or the tribal rights um, and what have you. And that's something that like sort of persisted um, into the later rabbinic traditions and it even gets to points where you have dialogues starting uh, in the Mishnah, which is mm -hmm. like sort of like their analog for the fathers, that uh, on points of uh, points of like great severity from God. So like the biggest example is like the binding of Isaac. It was that God was wrong and changed his mind. It wasn't that it was the time. Oh, of interesting. Day, right, and so it's kind of interesting that. We're having that where they're confronting God with the law that mm -hmm. he gave us, and he is answering them by fulfilling that law, not by changing his mind. Mm. So it's kind of like the humility of their of their interaction when, you know, throughout history, it seems like in the, in the development of rabbinic traditions, like, no, in these sorts of matters, you know, he was wrong. He changed his mind, and the rabbis sure. approved that. Mm. And, you know, Jesus Christ, the rabbis, like, no, the law always stood, and yeah. that's what it actually means. And that was the hard part about the tradition of the rabbis is that the way they wrote, they would write around the, the Torah or the Tanakh, and one rabbi would make commentary, and then the next rabbi and the next rabbi, and it all became kind of divinely inspired. But you kind of had to deal with what everyone had written before you, even if it was kind of like cuckoo, you know, like if it didn't make much sense, you know. Um, and here, what I love about what you said and what Jesus does is that it, what was really speaking to me in this passage is that you can't cherry pick. You can't cherry pick. You can't choose like, okay, I'm going to believe everything except for this one thing, you know? And I mean, the resurrection is a big thing to not choose for the Sadducees. Like I'm not using that as an example, but it kind of made me think about like, I've encountered a lot of people in my years in ministry who just cherry pick Catholicism, who cherry pick the gospel. And are like, okay, I will believe all of this, um, except I'm just not really cool with that. And I just want to be like, what? What? Like, I, I would never, like, you'd be like, you know what? I, my body's healthy, but, like, my leg's about to fall off, but I don't really need that. You know, like, it's what? Like, the whole thing is necessary. It all makes sense. It all coheres together, you know? And I get there's, there's a difference between having a difficulty versus having a doubt. Like, a difficulty is, like, I'm, I'm seeking to understand this. And maybe I don't get it yet, but I understand that there's probably a depth or an explanation that maybe I haven't heard yet. But I think a lot of people are just like, oh, I just doubt that that's even true. And I just can't believe that that's even true for certain things. And a lot of it has to do with the, the church teaching around areas of either social justice or sexual morality. Those are the areas where people get real blurred lines and they kind of form their own, you know, this is the church of my personal opinion. And it fits mostly within Catholicism. And I think that kind of stuff is going to be brought up at our judgment. My judgment, too. I've, I've had periods in my life where that was the same for me, you know. And I think the more and more I've read, the more and more I've studied, the more and more I realize, like, of course, the creator of the universe is up here and I'm not, you know, at that level. You know, like, I'm not, I haven't somehow figured out something that Jesus was just like, whoops, yeah, you're right. That wasn't, I should probably change my mind on that one. No, like, like God is infinite in his love and his truth and his, his beauty that he wants to give us. And just because maybe something is difficult doesn't mean that it should be abandoned. doesn't mean that we can just kind of cherry pick what we like and kind of form our own spirituality. Because I think that is exactly what the devil wants us to do. I heard this quote this week. Someone said um, that the, the devil can't create. He can only take and twist. The devil can't create. He can only take and twist. So what the devil wants to do in our life is to take Catholicism and twist it into something else. 
twist it into some shadowy version that feels comfortable, that feels easier, that still feels good, like we're, we're good people, we're doing good things, but we kind of give ourselves permission to say no to this or that. And every time I've seen it, it just leads to destruction in people's lives. Every time I've seen it, that even if it's just one thing, that's like, oh, we're totally in agreement with the church teaching and we live it out completely except in this one area. And then you walk with them and you journey with them and you just see that play out as the source of all of the, the suffering, the despair, the difficulty, the destruction, the isolation in their life. It's the production of everything negative. And it's, it's always easy as an outsider to see that correlation, to kind of point it out, but it's, it's hard when you're in the midst of it. And so like, I found this very convicting in, in like, just reflecting on it, like I felt very convicted by the Holy Spirit to say this, to preach this, that like we cannot cherry pick the faith. We cannot cherry pick Catholicism. We cannot cherry pick Christianity. Like Jesus came and he preached a teaching, a new law that is the fulfillment of the old. And say what you want about like the craziness of rabbinic tradition, but that's because they had such a deep love and respect for the law that they would even go so far as to talk so deeply about it and to explore all these things. I think a lot of time we do the opposite and we would just rather kind of play ignorance and say, all right, you know, I just want to, I don't want to know about that or I'm not going to talk about that. You know, and it's, it's just not an option. It's not an option because that's just a way that the door can open for the devil to come in and just start to twist things. You know, so we really have to be on guard against that. And I've had moments in my own life. You may have moments in your own life. We may be struggling with that right now in some capacity and that's okay. Difficulty is not the same as a doubt, but we have to acknowledge that. And if there is a difficulty, then I have to do something about that. How am I pursuing a better understanding of this? Who am I asking about this? But if I'm just kind of like, all right, I'm just going to kind of wait until I die, <laughs> you know, and just like I'll ask Jesus. Like, no, like we really need to wrestle with these things and seek to understand them because there's always an answer. There's always an answer. And my own spiritual journey, the only faith tradition of all of the different religious denominations I belonged to or tried to join over the years before I came back to Catholicism, the only religious tradition where I was encouraged to ask any question whatsoever because they knew I would find an answer, a good one, was in Catholicism. Everywhere else was either don't ask that question or we don't know the answer or that's just because it's the way we've always done it or because the Bible says it just wasn't good enough. Now, it's not, no, not knocking any of our brothers and sisters in other denominations. That was just my personal experience. And I know that I've continued to experience that because of the depth of the theological tradition of our faith. It's so beautiful. We take it for granted so often. And when we come across a difficulty, lean into it. Really start to ask, like, okay, why is this difficult? Is this something in me that I need to let go of? Is this something I need to seek to understand a little bit better? But we cannot fall into the trap of just saying, I'm just going to choose what I want. Like, I'm at a shopping market of religious practices. I'm going to create my own little recipe for my own perfect faith. It doesn't work like that. There's a hand up back here. Yeah. Yeah, I have an atheist friend who he brings up this one scripture, and when I tell him God is a good God, God doesn't come to people unless he's saying, well, what about this? In Ethan King, the life that was after his five was found, and these kids are like, yeah, she bears. Yeah, she bears, exactly. Yep. They killed 42 children. Mm -hmm. So what's the, how do we, <coughs> the way I told him is like, they must represent evil in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't, he wasn't satisfied with that. Old Testament. Yeah, <laughs> Old Testament's gnarly. Gnarly. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different ways to interpret the Old Testament because it's it was written 
not necessarily, I mean, it was written as a history, but it's also written in the Jewish style of using symbolism, using different things, you know, their own, like, kind of Jewish understanding of how to present God. And you also have to remember that when God revealed himself to the Jewish people, he gave them all these rules because it's the same way when you're raising a child. You know, God was choosing a people, he was raising them. They had no experience of a religion like this. Everything else was polytheistic, very paganistic, human sacrifice. This was totally different. And so how does God start? Like I start with my daughter. Don't touch the oven. Don't eat the cat food. You're a human. You're not a cat. You know, like don't put that in your mouth. Don't go in there. Like here's all the list of things to do and not do. And when you don't follow that, like really bad things happen. Like if you eat the cat food or you play in the toilet, like things are bad things are going to happen. And you see that happen in the Old Testament all the time. People don't follow the law. Bad things happen to them. Not because God is punishing them. Because he's telling them, like, this is the natural consequence if you do this thing. And so stories will happen in the Old Testament to demonstrate, not that God is punishing, but this is the natural result. Destruction naturally follows disobedience of the law because the law is to free you. And as we progress and we mature, then you kind of have the law of Jesus, which deepens. It's like, okay, now, honey, I told you not to touch the oven because I didn't want you to get burned. But now that you're old enough to understand, come and cook with me. You know, still don't touch the oven. The old law is still true. But now you understand why, and we can bring it to the place we really meant to bring it in the first place. But we have to grow into that. Reading the Bible is like that. So when you come across things in the Old Testament, they're like, wow, this seems like God is real fiery or he's destroying people. Remember, human people wrote this about God. And they understood the world as God is behind everything. So anything that bad that happened, even if it was something that was the natural consequence of what they did, they saw God behind it. And they even wrote it that way. And that doesn't mean it's, 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 uh, there's error in it. It just means that's true in the way that they understood it. But it doesn't mean that God is up there vindictively punishing people. He was angry in the Old Testament. And he's super nice in the New Testament. No. It's how we spiritually mature as a chosen people. Now as a Judeo-Christian faith, as, as Catholics, how we have grown over time in understanding God and the way we perceive the law and the way the law is revealed to us, the way that we practice it, matures with it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That's the Ten Commandments, 613 laws right there. And that's why once they're spiritually mature enough, generation after generation, Jesus can sum it up and love God and love your neighbor. Because you get it now. At least you should. And if you're still worried about like, you know, imagine like a full grown person like in the kitchen, just like, I can't touch anything in here. So dangerous in here. That's what the Pharisees were doing, right? They like missed the whole point, right? Just like, we just have to follow the law. Do not touch the oven. And Jesus is like, dude, eat, cook yourself some food, like get the big picture here, you know? That was the real frustration because they were imposing that on everyone else. And scrupulosity is not going to lead to anything good, just like cherry picking well, you know? So anyway, good stuff. Time's up. Any other thoughts, questions? The, oh, yeah, one more and then I'll end. My mind has been sort of take up all kinds of different kinds of props. The gift that we're living in, 2022 Christians, Catholics, mm -hmm. is that we have we have the Word, and we have the Church, and we have the Spirit of God in our soul, and uh, there's an answer, and it doesn't mean you have to get it on your own. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that that's a pretty big gift. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, but I, and you, just when you were saying you find these difficulties, well, most of my difficulties are when I'm trying to figure out something on my own. Yeah. There's Amen. Some, there's something or some place or something that 
there's an answer. Oh, yeah. And, uh, so that's a big amount of faith. That's a faith I think I got from my parent, my dad, especially uh, being a philosophy major and then a fraternity. Was, mm -hmm. And trained in their Jesuits, he says, you can, you can chase the difficulties in your mind forever and ever, but he says, remember God loves you. Mm -hmm. Remember that your faith and the faith in your church is what's going to save you. Mm -hmm. so, I love that. Yeah, thank you. Um, I want to come back to one part here, and that's how Jesus appeals to common ground. Because, you know, we probably all have different interactions with people in our weekly, daily, monthly, you know, lives where we encounter people who may not agree with us, who may not believe the things that we do, may have questions, who might even be hostile. And it's important here, Jesus could have given so many other places in the Old Testament that have evidence for the resurrection. In fact, there's a lot of better places than this, but there are places that the Sadducees wouldn't have acknowledged. They weren't part of the Torah. So he appeals to the common ground. He finds out something that they agree with. And this is such a great way to evangelize, asking questions, figuring out where do we agree? Like, do you believe in God? Okay, who is this God that you believe in? Or tell me about this God you don't believe in. And figuring out some way, you know, most of the time, if you ask that question of an atheist, tell me about this God you don't believe in, they give you a version of God, you'd be like, yeah, I wouldn't believe in that God either. <laughs> that's not who God is, you know, that's just ridiculous. Um, so, but asking questions to determine where is this common ground and then appealing to that, building off of it, it can build a really beautiful conversation. And it's not just this back and forth argument, quoting scripture, or quoting philosophy, it's really seeking to understand like, where are you coming from? What do you believe? Where do we agree? And building from there. And this is a good tactic for just life, especially right now in the midst of like election week, you know, coming up. It's a good tactic for every conversation. Pay less attention to where we disagree and more attention to where do we agree and how can we build from there? How can we seek to understand one another? Because I wholeheartedly believe, even if there are people who are completely opposite of me in belief, but they do not wake up in the morning saying like, oh, yes, I cannot wait to be evil today. Like, I don't think that. I think they have good intentions for believing what they do. I do. I think they probably in their mind think like, this is what a good person would believe because they've been taught it. They've been convinced it of, for whatever reason. And I believe the same thing about myself, you know, that I have good intentions for what I believe because I think it's true. And so remembering that, that it's not just like, you know, as a Christian, no person is your enemy. Remember, the enemy is the enemy. And so when we encounter another person, acknowledging them as that, finding that common ground, I think is so important. A second thing I think is this point about the resurrection, how I said, like, this is why this is one of the last things that gets attacked, because it's so important and so central. And I don't think we think about this enough. That there's so many things, I mean, 2000 years worth of theology and teachings in the Catholic Church, like it's, it can be dense when you get into studying and reading and conversations with people, but really like, it's just about the resurrection. Because if the resurrection happened, and it did, then it all has to be true. Because Jesus didn't just come and teach and like fib a couple times and then rise from the dead. Like that would be random and weird and make no sense. Like if he really said he was going to rise from the dead, and he did, that proves everything else that he taught. It proves that he is who he says he is. And that changes human history forever. And you look at any other you know, religious tradition, any other institution, nothing compares to the effect that Christianity, Christendom has had on the known world. And that is ridiculous, completely ridiculous to have happened as the result of a lie. It just wouldn't happen. People would have said, oh, I take it back. Please don't kill me like I was lying. Please don't martyr me for this faith that was made up. Nobody would die for that. 
And so if we really like spend some time, like I encourage you, like spend some time, maybe read 1 Corinthians 15. It's a whole beautiful chapter about the resurrection. And maybe if you're not brushed up on some of the church teaching on that, maybe find that in the catechism, look up resurrection. There's a whole section on it. It's not very long uh, about that part of the creed, the resurrection of the dead and that Christ rose from the dead. And just maybe read some of that. Just recognize like, wow, like this really happened. No other religious founder in history claimed to be God and then proved it by rising from the dead. No other religious figure in all of history did those two things. And Jesus did with over 500 eyewitnesses to his resurrected body at a time where you only needed two to prove something happened in a court of law. Like historically binding truth in terms of the standards at that day that this definitively happened. And people took that truth to their deaths. People who were both educated and uneducated, people all across the spectrum of different cultures, different genders and backgrounds, different social status, they all were changed. That demands a response from us. And if that's true, all these other little difficulties we might have about church teachings and doctrines, like there's a way to understand them. There's a way because Jesus rose from the dead. There has to be. If that's true, everything else is true. And when I have moments where I'm really overwhelmed, when I'm really doubting certain things, or I find like, oh man, it's hard to be Christian right now. Or it's hard to be Catholic right now. I, I tend to return to that. I tend to return to the point that like, yeah, it's hard. But if Jesus rose from the dead, then I don't know what else to do. Because that's world-altering, life-altering. It's the center, should be the center of everything we believe and why. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of this evening and the gift of this passage. I pray, God, that you would help us be convicted of our faith in new ways. If we are guilty, as many of us and many people often are at times, of cherry-picking our faith, help us to lean into the difficulties and not let them become doubts or areas of despair, areas of divorce from the faith, but recognize that we are being called into a place of deeper understanding. And so help us to be patient, surround us with wise people, and lead us to the truth. For you are the way, the truth, and the life. Help us in our interactions with others in the coming weeks to seek the good in others, to find a common ground, to seek to understand, and to remember that no person is our enemy. The enemy is the enemy. So we pray, Lord, that you would bless us each in the ways that we most need it. Help us remember the power of the resurrection and that we are a resurrection people who should be people of hope and joy through whom you can do miraculous things. So we pray, God, we would be open and receptive to that power and presence in our life each day until we gather once again next week. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks so much.